I think the best way to survive the apocalypse is actually regimented community structure. You need other people. Which is interesting because a lot of zombie apocalypse, a lot of the appeals in the complete breakdown of society, but it's really other people that will help get you through it. You're listening to the Beyond Disciplines podcast, produced by the Faculty of Arts and Science at Concordia University in Montreal. The Beyond Disciplines podcast is a conversation series that brings scholars together across different fields of knowledge. I'm Aaron Lakoff. Beyond Disciplines. Mix it up, experiment boldly, and go beyond. Look up there, way up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's just some strange figment of our collective imagination. Over the last century, popular culture has thought up all sorts of wacky superheroes, ghosts, mutants, and other paranormal creatures. On the silver screen, we've seen Superman, Wonder Woman, and Wolverine fight the bad guys, cops on the trail of killers and forensic labs, and people outrunning their undead neighbors during the zombie apocalypse. In fiction, anything can happen. But behind all good science fiction, there's a little bit of science fact. Can humans possess superpowers? Does mind control really exist? What's behind the forensic technology of the hit TV show CSI? On this episode of Beyond Disciplines, we explore some of the science behind the biggest myths Hollywood ever told. To help us out with that, we'll hear from four researchers at Concordia who work in science but who also like to ponder the limits of the paranormal. Richard Courtemanche from the Department of Exercise Science examines if Superman could exist in real life. Brigitte Dernay, a PhD student in chemistry and biochemistry, regularly dons a white coat to work in forensic science labs and will bust some of the myths behind your favorite TV shows. Brandon Finley, professor in the chemistry department will tell us how to survive a zombie apocalypse and Angela Alberga also of the exercise science department will bring us back down to earth and tell us why maybe striving for superhero bodies and powers might not be such a good idea this is going to be a fun episode of this podcast so settle in grab your favorite action figure and stay with us Ride to a customer. Superman! Bye. Superman, it's me! 
Let's admit it. We've all dreamt about being a superhero at some point in our lives. Some of us when we were kids, and some of us, well, when we were bigger kids. Richard Cotemanche works in the exercise science department at Concordia. He's not only interested in how the brain makes the body move, but also how we can use superheroes as pedagogical tools. Cotemanche loves talking about characters like Superman or Iron Man to attract students, and even young children, into the sciences. Since superheroes move exceptionally well, there are still some aspects of their superpowers that we can examine using physics and the sciences. We sat down with him to ask him what science facts can tell us about science fiction when it comes to superheroes. I find that a lot of these uh, science fiction writers, because they're really writers trying to uh, invent characters, you know, they they try to predict uh, from the status of science now what could be, you know, a future superhuman in a way. Some of it is, as I said in the presentation, is, is pure magic, and you can't explain. That's much more difficult to go through, but then uh, looking at um, how the characters are developed, sometimes it's very much based on the the current questions in science. How does the brain work? How do how do muscles work? Can we replace muscles? Can we make humans stronger? Can we make them faster? Um, can we understand some of those uh, uh, super qualities that they have and try to extrapolate? I find those elements have a quick link, and that's why the examples I used about um, robotic, uh, control of robotic parts with the brain is actually the way I'm trying to teach in exercise science and physiology courses about, you know, how, what can we, how can we think about how the brain does it in terms of information and, and controlling a robotic limb is almost like asking how the brain controls the actual body and the muscles. So that's that's the point of view of the scientist, you know. Of course, uh, the superheroes, they, they go much further than what science knows right now. And so you see the superhero who's got a fantastic control of a robotic part that's been added. And you go, how, do, how, how does that happen? And then as you see through the years, you see that the imagination of the writers has gotten sharper and sharper with uh, more precision and slowly but surely science is using the is using a similar pattern to try to understand uh, how um, the body you know if we imagine the body as it is now uh, and we understand how it works as it is now then how can we try to predict the future so of course you just mentioned the fact that some of the myth around superheroes is of course just magic. It's completely invented, but some of it might be based a little bit more in scientific fact. And let, let's take a classic uh, Superman who I imagine is one of your favorites, definitely a favorite of mine. Um, could a version of Superman be scientifically possible or some elements there? Yeah, that's 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 a good one. Uh, the, from the standpoint of uh, a lot of the superpowers that Superman has, everybody is trying to find a way to get stronger. So super strength, 
Um, you see it in, in, uh, in the ads. You see it in people that are cross-fitting, people that are exercising particular ways. Um, the way that Superman is strong, it says that it's because Superman can get power from the suns. So he's a he's an alien that he was under different conditions, and these different conditions, you know, transposed to Earth made him super strong. So that's close to magic, you know, in terms of, of how it works. It's almost like we'd have to go on Mars and see how humans are to be if they're stronger. Just a a, a simple relationship, but there are ways that. Um, biological cells can respond to light, light of the sun. So that could be used as a way to introduce people to the uh, physiology. Uh, but yeah, from the superpowers of Superman's strength, uh, Superman's cap capacity to fly, I can't explain that. You see it in movies. It's a fantastic ability. Uh, his heat vision, can't, can't explain that either. Um, he's got a super cold breath. Can't explain that. So there's a lot of uh, elements that cannot be explained, but the strength is is of always what what comes up, and that's you know when people say this is a Superman, you know it's it's always based on strength. So I think there's a lot of ways that you can also introduce students to how muscles work, how uh, strength can be gained. At least in exercise science, we touch on that in terms of the athletic pursuit. But to the point of a Superman, we're not there yet. And I, I wouldn't advocate for the uh, purely pharmaceutical ways of getting strong. Yeah. Uh, but the but in terms of the, the approach, I think the more we know about the physiology and the more, more people are knowledgeable and we'll know more about how to get strong humans. You know? And just lastly, it's kind of a fun question. Who's your favorite superhero and why? I might have guessed Superman before. I'm not sure if I was right, but who would you say is your favorite? Um, you know what? If if uh, I, I, li I like Superman, the one that fascinates me a bit more, actually more recently, has been Iron Man because he's kind of an engineer and he tries to reverse engineer the body. If I had to pick, you know, uh, he's not that interesting, though, because he, he has no superpowers. Super he's uh, super smart. But the but the approach of the scientist he has and the way he attaches to things. And the one in terms of the pure magic, I've always been fascinated by Thor. Like, travel to other worlds, like, easily. And his... Um, I like to have a hammer like that because he he knows <laughs> he knows how, how he has this symbiotic relationship with a with an object that is super powerful. I find that very interesting. Um, I also want to be careful in the presentations I made. These were all male superheroes, and um, you know there are more and more female superheroes that are uh, very interesting. Not necessarily an equivalent of the male superhero. So when I I have a daughter too, so it's not like she's trying to be Superman. She she's probably interested in other superheroes, and there are um, there's quite a few. You know, uh, Wonder Woman is coming out. That's good. That's a good movie to watch, and and I think it's good that uh, the portrayal gets a little bit more varied. Uh, I think there was a question during the presentation about the uh, after the presentation about the the various superheroes, and I think it's good that it's not just you know seven year old boys that are interested in in this, and it's it's a little bit more um, varied in, in style. Um, they're not all American anymore. They're all, they're also coming from all over the world, so I think that's good as well. 
As we heard from Richard Cotemanche, there is indeed some science truths to science fiction. However, entertainment is still entertainment, and the science we see on TV and in movies should be taken with a huge grain of salt. Brigitte Desarnais is a PhD candidate in chemistry and biochemistry at Concordia, but she also works for the Quebec government's forensic science laboratory, and so she regularly dons a lab coat to help solve real-life crime scene mysteries. She spoke with the Beyond Disciplines podcast to break down some of the myths behind TV crime shows, in particular the popular series CSI. Let's have a listen. So my name is Brigitte Desarnais. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Um, most of my research, though, I do at the Laboratoire de Sciences Judiciaires et Médecine Légale, which is a forensics lab here in Montreal doing all the analyses for the province of Quebec in terms of forensic sciences. Um, so for sure, the CSI shows are made to be sort of dramatic, and um, there's, there has to be a suspense to it, I, I'm, I'm guessing. And so, of course, that makes it so it's a bit different than what we do in real life. Um, so yeah, of course, the clothing we're going to wear is very unattractive compared to uh, what we see on CSI episodes. So we need to have our lab coats, and even more than that, when we're on an actual crime scene and we want to prevent contamination. Um, one of the big problems, quote-unquote, with the CSI episodes is um, the turnaround time. Mm. Um, so sometimes what you'll see on a CSI episode, is, for example, in toxicology, is they have the body open in front of them so they're performing the autopsy and they have the toxicology results already in their hands, and that's not what happened in real life. Um, typically, you'll see more in toxicology turnaround times of an average 60 days to get out a report, and um, often it's more, 90% of our cases are closed in 90 days. So that's very typical for toxicology. It's even a very good, <laughs> um, very good turnaround time. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I mean, on a bit of a more serious note, I think one of the really interesting things that you touched on in your presentation was um, work around kind of like crime scene drugs, or um, you know, specifically talking about um, quote unquote party drugs, so called party drugs, or um, drugs that we would find like in bar settings. So, can you talk a little bit about some of like the myths and realities like that we might pick up from shows like CSI or popular culture versus like what you've seen working in toxicology settings? Sure. I think uh, one of the biggest myth is uh, day trip drugs. Um, so often day trip drug is associated to either GHB or uh, Rufis, which is Rohypnol. Um, but the fact is that's not what we see in our cases. So let's clear uh, Rohypnol first, Rufis. Uh, we've haven't seen that in Quebec at all since the since 93 or 94 um, so n- we've never ever picked it in any case because it's not um, uh, something that is uh, prescribed by doctors in Canada uh, now into GHB um, we don't see it in sexual assault cases 
um, as a drug that is used to uh, facilitate the sexual assault, so to sort of knock out the victim and then perform sexual assault. We don't see it in that setting. We see it in some uh, sexual assault cases, but the victim has knowingly taken the drug because it has uh, similar effects to alcohol, basically. So some people just use it recreationally. And we're actually able to pick it up in our analyses, and we see it very often. We see it very often in driving under influence cases. So that's where we see it. About one-third of our cases of driving under influence, we have GHB in it, which is a lot more than the other provinces in Canada. It's a regional particularity. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's not seen in sexual assault cases, and really... The date-to-rape drug that we see in sexual assault cases is alcohol. We see it in a third of the cases, and that's what fits the most with the histories we see where the person has memory loss or think that something has been slipped in her drink. Um, so that's what people need to be careful is alcohol intake. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's okay for someone to sexually assault anyone that has uh, taken too much alcohol because there's a provision in the criminal code that if the person uh, basically is drunk, uh, well, this person cannot give consent and you can be charged with sexual assault mm -hmm. if the person is drunk. Uh, but that just means, you know, be careful with alcohol intake. <laughs> mm -hmm. And people have to, especially men, have to practice more consent as well. You can hear me. Yes. Why do you eat people? Not people. Brains. Brains only. Yes. Why? The pain. What about the pain? The pain of being dead. Pop culture has a strange fascination with the end of the world. Whether it's giant meteors, monsters, global pandemics, or zombies, people love thinking about the apocalypse. But specifically when it comes to the undead, Concordia biochemistry prof Brandon Finley has some ideas about how to survive the zombie apocalypse. Follow his advice, and you'll be ready for when those lumbering, blood-covered corpses show up at your door hungry for brains. By comparing zombies with other pathogens, he draws parallels with the undead in real life and thinks that a zombie apocalypse might not be impossible to survive. Let's have a listen. My name is Brandon Finley. I'm an assistant professor in chemistry and biochemistry, and our work surrounds antibiotics, understanding how antibiotic resistance emerges as well as discovering the next crop of antibiotics for treating diseases in the future. All right. So uh, this interview is going to be a little bit fun because we're going to be talking about zombies today. Now, uh, there's kind of like this popular myth. People like talking about the zombie apocalypse in the sense yeah. of like, what would you do if there was a zombie apocalypse? You would run to your bunker and gather up all your important stuff, maybe a shotgun, maybe a whole bunch of like canned food, some tuna. Um, but according to 
I know like some of your research and a presentation you just gave at Beyond Disciplines, zombies might actually not be as dangerous as we would think them to be. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that idea. Obviously, zombies aren't real. Sure. So for a zombie virus to work, it would have to take over its host. So it would have to be able to turn a walking, breathing human into the shambling or stumbling about undead that we generally see. But to keep moving, your cells would still need to get energy. They would still need to breathe, use oxygen, create CO2. So all the sort of processes that are going on in your body right now would have to remain, which means that Aside from a bolt to the brain, you would have all of the usual weaknesses as a zombie that you do as a human. So you'd still be able to bleed out, you would still have to eat, you'd still have to breathe, all those limitations. But a zombie doesn't really have any of the higher order thinking, which means they lack a lot of the reason that gives us an edge in the natural world. So they wouldn't be able to use tools, for example, they wouldn't be able to climb... All of the easy ways to escape zombies would be there, and they would actually be much more vulnerable than if you were being attacked by an army, for example. This is all really good information, so people out there worrying about the zombie apocalypse should take note of all of this. Um, One of the things that I thought was really interesting that you have brought up is that... um, you know, and, and of course, a lot of fiction, a lot of science fiction is somewhat still based in science fact and science reality. And so maybe the closest analogy in, in the real world that we could think of with zombieism would be rabies, as you've touched on. And so can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. So ignoring a little bit the historical roots for zombies, the voodoo magic and all that, Common depictions right now usually show it as a virus, something that spreads from person to person after being bitten by a zombie or dying from a zombie attack. So that puts it a fair bit in the realm of reality, where you could have a disease go through a population. And in general, all diseases work by co-opting part of our body's normal processes. So a virus does this by taking over cells, by using the cellular machinery to replicate. Bacteria can do this in various ways by altering their environment, by scavenging nutrients from our body. So the closest we have to zombies is something that would also affect the brain, would be passed along via bites probably, just to stick with the usual zombies hunting for brains. So rabies is probably the best candidate there because it can cause very extreme cases of aggression in animals and in humans. And it's actually transmitted a lot through bites. It infects the salivary glands, causes them to overproduce saliva. And then when an infected individual bites a healthy individual, the virus gets carried along in the saliva, to say. Mm from one person to the next. If you were trying to survive the zombie apocalypse, had to go down to your bunker, what would be one thing, one essential tool that you would bring with you? So 
the problem with the zombie apocalypse is it becomes a matter of scale. On small numbers, zombies are not too difficult to deal with. One person against three, four of them, if they're appropriately prepared, shouldn't have too much trouble. The issue with the apocalypse comes when you're starting to fight 10,000 zombies at a time. Right. And one person cannot efficiently deal with that. So I think the best way to survive the apocalypse is actually a regimented community structure. You need other people. Which is interesting because a lot of zombie apocalypse, a lot of the appeal is in the complete breakdown of society, but it's really other people that will help get you through it. I don't think any amount of zombies outside of like the 28 Days Later Rage Zombie style would ever be able to efficiently take down a well-prepared battalion, for example. Like, a group that's just set up with a very large supply of ammunition and a favorable terrain should be able to deal with whatever comes. So it's all about the teamwork. It really is. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. No trouble. It's been a pleasure. On this podcast so far, we've talked about superheroes, superpowers, mysterious crime scenes, and zombies. Whether it's saving the world from evil villains or just saving yourself, one thing is certain. You gotta stay in shape. But even a lot of the common narratives we hear about fitness all around us are either based on outdated studies or on pseudoscience. To help us debunk some of the myths around fitness and health, we spoke with Angela Alberga of the Exercise Science Department. We started by asking her what are some of the biggest myths around weight gain and weight management. So my name is Angela Alberga and I'm a new assistant professor here in the Department of Exercise Science. And uh, I do research on uh, weight-related issues, so how to prevent and how to um, manage weight-related issues having to do with eating disorders, um, obesity, and physical inactivity, and weight stigma. Uh, one main myth is how the media often portrays that weight management is as just as easy as eat less and exercise more. And the research actually suggests that there's a lot of complexity regarding weight management and it has to do with so many other factors that influence that energy balance. So those are not really the root causes of weight gain, there's so much more complexity to that, so having to do with our environment, um, larger levels that are way beyond just the individual, way beyond our own biology, but genetics of course play a role, Um, but there's so many other factors including family, socioeconomic status, and various other factors that are much larger than just the person. So that's one major myth. Um, The second myth too is that when you exercise that you often just change your metabolism just by exercising, and by Generally, by exercising, yes, you burn calories while you're moving, but the portrayal in the media is that it boosts your metabolism, so your metabolism will go a lot faster. And unfortunately, uh, the research that we've seen through The Biggest Loser, um, the authors actually looked at how what happens to your metabolism after people really go through these really intense exercise periods, and actually it decreases your resting metabolism. So this is the calories that you're burning just at rest. It has to do with your body's uh, organs, how they're working, 
and there's a lot of myths surrounding that just thinking that after you exercise that you boost your resting metabolism but you generally don't because mm -hmm. when you lose weight your metabolism actually goes down which makes one of the factors so much more difficult to maintain weight management what could be maybe one of the dangers the pitfalls if we followed that myth of you know eating less exercising more to achieve weight management or weight loss well, you know, the difficulty is is that when people become often obsessed with, um, you know, eating less or exercising more, you can, you can really be, there can be some problems because it can be associated with uh, eating disorder pathology. So some signs and symptoms of that obsession, compulsion with having to maintain a sort of aesthetic or thin ideal. And that's what the media portrays is like, you know, an image of, of health and an image of fitness, which is not necessarily true. And that actually really predisposes people to stigmatize themselves and stigmatize other people who don't necessarily fit that type of body ideal, which is unfortunately portrayed all over the media and all over movies and TV and social media uh, nowadays. Mm. Maybe just looking also like some of the recent superhero movies that have come out. Uh, I know Wonder Woman just came out. Um, you can also think of uh, male superheroes like Batman, who's like, I think subsequent Batman movies he just keeps getting more and more ribbed um, and again like looking at these ideals like these body image ideals that are portrayed in Hollywood movies of how a superhero or, or any kind of hero is supposed to look what might you see as being some of the pitfalls in that? Yeah we have to be careful with that because unfortunately superheroes and many other characters are portrayed in one sort of aesthetic, one sort of you know very muscular, very thin ideals for women or very muscular for men and that can really affect our body image ourselves and people that are seeing these types of images all the time and then we often think that we have to maintain that sort of idea and we have to look like that to be that fit or we have to look that way to be, to be beautiful. And or good looking, but that's the that's the issue. We have to be careful with that because not we ha come in so many different shapes and sizes, and that type of ideal really can force us to become too obsessed with aesthetics and how we look, and that can really affect our mental health. It can really affect our self esteem, um, our body satisfaction, and those are actually very important to just maintain happiness. So we have to be careful because those are not realistic. And uh, they're often changed through media just to make us look a different way. And building on that, I know part of your research and your work looks at, you know, how to prevent uh, stigma around uh, weight and, uh, and, and, you know, looking at discrimination in our society, uh, what we might call fat phobia as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So these types of portrayals that we see in the media often contribute to the way that we prejudice, we have prejudice against other people living in larger bodies. And that's what's a form of weight stigma. So understanding the negative beliefs and attitudes that we have about people living in larger bodies. And that can really be harmful because if you experience or if you perceive that kind of discrimination, you tend to have lower self-esteem, um, symptoms of depression, anxiety, stress, uh, lots of negative health impacts, not only just on your mental health, but on your physical health as well. And that weight stigma and discrimination is quite prevalent in today's society and the media doesn't help us because of those types of ideals. So it's actually really important to portray diversity and body shapes and sizes not only just in the media, but in our workplace and images and posters, flyers, info pamphlets, uh, to try to break down those stereotypes 
and to really show that there's a diversity of people doing active things in non-stereotypical ways so that we um, enjoy ourselves in all kinds of movements and activities. Mm. And finally, um, I know what, what you've kind of said through your research is that our focus should be on health, not necessarily on weight. And so can you elaborate a little bit more on that idea? Yeah, so the the issue in today's society is that we often just focus on weight as the as an indicator of health. And what we know is that the the way we measure our weight and the way we use BMI, so that's the body mass index, is a very um, inaccurate way to really look at our health and our and our projection for health later on. So it's much more important to actually look at our physical and mental health, but really not focus on just our weight because weight is not an indicator of health and it's important to learn healthy behaviors to be able to maintain health but not necessarily look at our weight because there's so many influential factors that influence our weight really not just having to do with just that on number on the scale science fiction can capture our imaginations and make us envision possible realities far beyond our own horror movies can shock us scare us and show us a good time. And crime mysteries can put us in the place of Sherlock Holmes to solve the most complicated whodunits. As all of our guests have shown on the podcast today, the greatest tales ever thought up in our culture can have some scientific truth to them, or they can just be full of hot air. Perhaps the most important thing to remember is to be skeptical of what we see on the screen, while also turning to the sciences to evaluate fictional possibilities in real life. After all, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. Thanks again for listening to the Beyond Disciplines podcast, supported by the Faculty of Arts and Science at Concordia University in Montreal on unceded Mohawk territory. Beyond Disciplines is produced by Simone Lucas and myself, Aaron Lakoff. Thank you to all of our guests, Richard Courtemanche, Brigitte Desarnais, Brandon Finley, and Angela Alberga. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. When you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people to find the podcast. Questions or comments? Email us at beyonddisciplines at gmail.com. This is the last episode of Beyond Disciplines for this season, but we'll be back in the fall with more events and podcasts to stimulate your mind and ears. In the meantime, like our page on Facebook and tell a friend about the show. Have a great summer.